So this is my old Walkman, and it's technically not a Walkman because that's a trademark owned by the Sony Corporation. And as you can see, this is an Iowa. I'm using Walkman in a generic sense, kind of like calling any tissues Kleenex because doing that hurts corporations by eroding the power of the brand name. And I don't mind hurting Sony or Kleenex and neither do I mind hurting Google by using Google as a verb. It's fun. You should try it sometime. Stick it to the man. Anyway, I really like this, this thing. I like the way it looks. I like its user interface and design. And I like it just as a piece of vintage consumer electronics. I think it's just cool looking. And uh, this still works. And I still use it occasionally to rip cassettes. This was actually my second Walkman. I don't remember the first so much other than it was a lot bigger than this and it wore out from constant use. <laughs> so back in the day, you know, I'd put a, a cassette in here and I'd, I'd pop in my earbuds and I'd go for a long walk around my town. And by long walk, I mean, I would go four or five miles. Uh, so I'd be gone for a few hours and oftentimes that would occur in the snow. So my town got a ton of winter weather because it was in the northeast of the United States. And we'd get the lake effect snow off of Lake Erie. So I'd bundle up like crazy and I'd wander out into the blizzard and come home looking like a snowman. And on these walks, I would really focus in on the music. I'd listen to the same cassette three or four times in a row, just really getting into it, just putting one foot in front of the other. And it was a great way to relax and just clean my head. And I don't really do this anymore. I think I'm too paranoid these days to walk around with headphones on. I prefer to be aware of my surroundings in my middle age. Uh, I still do go for walks and I'm very active outside, but I just don't do the music thing so much while I'm doing that. Uh, maybe that's something I can try because it really was great to be active outside while enjoying music. So when do I listen to music these days? Uh, sometimes when I work out, but honestly, it's mostly in the car. Uh, but in the car, I'm just as likely to listen to a podcast, to be honest. And as many people before me have noted, our whole relationship to recorded music has dramatically changed. You know, music is now largely mobile, it's available on demand, and our attention spans are shorter than ever. So we're more likely to listen to just a song or a bit of a song than experience an entire album end to end. And for me, how much I listen is often governed by the length of my car ride or the length of my workout. And maybe that's why some people are gravitating back to vinyl. It's a format that demands the listener's attention. And you have to be physically nearby, and you have to have this physical artifact to deal with, and you have to sit in one place and experience it. And I guess that's one good thing about vinyl. But again, it's not enough for me to go back to it. If you want to hear my rant about that, then listen to the beginning of episode 15. I'm not going to repeat it here. So yeah, like most of you, I used to be a mixed up teenager. I think that's pretty redundant. I think most teenagers are mixed up. It's just the normal state of things. But for me, listening to music was a big release. And it gave me a channel 
for my more extreme emotions, and it just generally even things out. So instead of my mental health having huge peaks and valleys, it was sort of the derivative of that. And yeah, that's a calculus reference. Um, at that age, I was aware that I had a lot of extra energy, and that's something that it's hard to remember now, and something I frankly envy now. But a long walk was one way for me to deal with that. I would just go out and keep moving for three or four hours up and down hills in an effort to tire myself out. Uh, and it's funny, but even though that was something I did 30 years ago, thinking back on the winter of 91, 92, I can remember specific moments from those walks. I can remember where I was, what I was listening to. I remember we had a lot of snow that winter. And it was fun to wander around in the evenings after dinner in the dark, all bundled up with the snowflakes coming down and the streetlights. And I can remember that there were very few cars around. It was just me walking in the middle of the road along the tire tracks in the fresh snow. No one else was out. And everything was quiet except for what was coming through my headphones. And what was that exactly? Well, in looking for music that matched that mood, I could hardly have done better. In fact, I can imagine this as a music video right now filmed in grainy black and white by Anton Corbin himself, me trudging through the snow, listening to the album still by English post-punk legends Joy Division. And okay, I can see through the interwebs that a bunch of you just now raised your hands and are bouncing around in your seats. So I'll answer your question right now. Why am I not talking about their first studio album, the timeless classic Unknown Pleasures? Uh, as far as pop culture is concerned, yeah, I agree. It's their best-known work, if only for its iconic album cover that's been plastered on everything from shot glasses to baby pajamas, which, by the way, is a radiograph of the first pulsar that was discovered, and it was discovered in 1967 by Jocelyn Bell. Remember her name, okay? So why am I not covering their singles compilation? Substance, after all, it includes their biggest hit, Love Will Tear Us Apart, which is so incredibly popular that I heard it in a Subway restaurant just a few weeks ago while enjoying my six-inch ham and turkey on wheat. Uh, that's a legit question, but the short answer is because I wasn't listening to either of these albums when I was on my walk back in 1991. I was listening to Still. And those are undeniably great albums. And they're both on the list for me to address in the future. Uh, but along with, I should say, their second album, Closer, which is another classic. But in these early months of my Joy Division fandom, I was really focused in on Still. So when did I first hear Joy Division? It was probably around 1990. And my friend let me make a tape of Substance. And to be honest, it didn't catch my ear at first. Uh, at that time, I was interested in new sexy sounds like industrial and electronic and sampling. You know, I wanted something that was not just ordinary rock. And to me, the first few tracks on Substance sounded pretty boring. They sounded like generic punk rock. And punk as punk never really grabbed me. Some of my friends were into it, but it really wasn't for me. Let's face it, folks, in 77, I wasn't pogoing to the Sex Pistols. I was in preschool. Uh, of course, I quickly 
clued in about Joy Division's very brief existence and all the drama that had happened and how the band changed. And I'm not going to dwell on any of that, but I think I have to at least state the facts in order to just get it out of the way. So they were in existence for about six, or I'm sorry, four years. And on the eve of their American tour, their lead singer unfortunately committed suicide. So the rest of the band took a few months off and then they decided to continue, but not as Joy Division, but by starting over practically from square one with a different name, which was New Order. And as I'm sure you know, New Order went on to great success despite almost never talking about Joy Division and almost never playing any Joy Division songs, at least in that early part of their career. But for more on New Order, go back and listen to episode three. I'm talking about Joy Division here, so that part of the story is in the future. Uh, I might have left Joy Division on the shelf if it hadn't been for the second half of Substance. Uh, you see, about halfway through, they stopped sounding punk and started sounding like something else, like something new. And there wasn't really a descriptor for that back in the day, so the catch-all term that everyone used was post-punk. And what happened was that each band member started to show their little, little idiosyncrasies. So the singer, Ian Curtis, stopped shouting and started singing in a baritone. And the bass player, Peter Hook, stopped playing low in the neck and started playing up high. And the guitarist, Barney Sumner, started monkeying around with keyboards. And the drummer, Stephen Morris, he, all, he was the oddball. And he still is the oddball. He didn't change at all. He was always a phenomenal drummer even from the very first track on Substance, which was called the Warsaw. And I've been a drummer on and off for 30 years, and that song, that song still confuses me. I can't really tell what the hell he's doing, but it sounds great. And I guess to me, it sounds like he's playing almost an ordinary rock beat, but with an open hi-hat instead of a snare. And I don't know, I've never heard another song with a drum pattern that's anything like it. It's pretty interesting. Anyway. On that album, Substance, they went from being pretty derivative to finding their own voice. And it's important to remember, too, that Joy Division as a band only existed for a few years. And during those years, the members were all really young. They were really just kids. I mean, they were kids relative to my age now. They were in their early 20s. Um, you know, as we know, that's kind of young enough to still be a knucklehead without knowing you're a knucklehead. Uh, but Substance was a collection of their singles, and some of those were truly great. I mentioned already Love Will Tear Us Apart, classic track. Of course, there's also Atmosphere, one of the most beautiful post-punk songs ever, and it might be their crowning achievement. But in my mind, the sound of those latter singles could be extrapolated neatly into early New Order. And for me, early New Order was my jam. That's what I loved. So... Out of my love for their later incarnation, I grew to love Joy Division 2. And part of that was the result of me wandering around listening to Still for hours and hours in the snow. So who were Joy Division? I already mentioned the names of the band members. Uh, they were four guys who were all from Manchester, England, or thereabouts, Stockport, Macclesfield, Am I pronouncing that correctly? I don't know. I rarely hear it pronounced. And honestly, that's one reason I'm recording this stuff instead of just posting it on a blog somewhere. I think it's interesting to hear all of this stuff pronounced. 
all this stuff that I've been reading about for decades, all this music lore. So yeah, please, I please uh, forgive and correct my pronunciation if it's wrong. I'm not, I'm not English. Uh, but yeah, Joy Division famously formed in the wake of a Sex Pistols gig at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester. It was one of those gigs that everyone claimed to be at, and everyone who went would later start a band, talent notwithstanding. So it was sort of like the Pistols had given them all permission to just go for it, and they all did. And Joy Division was a bit like Spinal Tap in the early days because they had no regular drummer. That is, until they met this weird kid named Stephen Morris who liked to drink cough syrup and who could play the drums like nothing they'd ever seen before. And that solidified their lineup, but they were still playing out using various names. At first, they wanted to call themselves Warsaw, like the Polish city, after the song by David Bowie, Warsaw. Uh, but some other band beat them to that name, so out of necessity, they became Joy Division. And I'm not going to get into the whys and wherefores of that name, but it has some pretty dark connotations from World War II. Uh, you have to keep in mind, though, that the punks in the late 70s reveled in all sorts of these transgressive references. So black armbands and swastikas on your clothes oddly didn't really mean that you were a Nazi at the time. It just meant that you liked to piss off the boomers. And it's really hard to fathom that kind of attitude here in the 21st century. Um, it's just a different way of thinking. And keep in mind that Nazis really were a thing in the early punk days. It just wasn't always easy to tell who they were. Sometimes they were skinheads, but not always. Anyway, uh, Joy Division were anything but Nazis or fascists. They were just some harmless working class blokes who wanted to play some tunes. And what they really wanted to do, though, was to get a record deal. And eventually, they did. As legend goes, they confronted Tony Wilson in a bar and demanded that he put them on his TV show. And at the time, he had a program called So It Goes that he presented for. And it featured what we would now call alternative music. And Tony, at the time, was this budding impresario, another real character that you got to just read about. Uh, he would feature Joy Division in his live night at what he called the Factory Club that he was running with some buddies. And this would later expand and turn into a record label, Factory Records, which would become famous or maybe notorious for doing things completely ass-backward. <laughs> so Factory Records was stylish, but had a complete lack of regard for businesses or other practicalities, um, any, any business aspects. And I think the members of Joy Division would one day question the whole wisdom of having signed a factory as they watched the label eat their fortunes on a bunch of just half-baked business ventures. But no one could ever say that factory hadn't secured Joy Division a hallowed place in music history. So they ended up going for being legends rather than being multimillionaires. <laughs> so let's talk about Still. What is this album? Well, the Joy Division catalog is pretty sparse, not counting endless reissues. Again, the band only existed for a few years and recorded for about three of those years. So the, the essentials break down like this. So their first studio album was Unknown Pleasures, which was released in 1979. The band dissolved on May 18, 1980. Yes, I have that date memorized. As I said, their second studio album was Closer, 
which was released in July of 1980, so posthumously. And there were a bunch of unreleased odds and ends, plus some live performances, and Factory Records collected all of those onto a compilation album called Still, which came out in 1981. So that left a bunch of uncollected singles, which came out on Substance in 1988, the year after New Order's singles collection came out, which was also called Substance. And again, for more on that, see episode three. So with very few exceptions, Every compilation, box set, and reissue after that point was a blatant cash grab by London Records, who then owned the rights to the Joy Division and New Order catalogs ever since the band Ditch Factory in 1992. Factory went under in that year and ceased to exist as a company. So for more rants about how the music industry relentlessly screwed customers, please see episode 15. <laughs> a lot of references in this episode. So... Yes, still as an album is a bit of an oddity, and frankly, that's what appealed to me about it. I think the term that's used is dog's breakfast. I like that it wasn't a polished studio album. I like that these songs were never really meant to sit alongside each other, and I like that there were so many songs. There's uh, 20 tracks on this edition that I have. It just uh, is an album that seems to go on and on when you're listening to it. And it was especially great to just walk to for hours and hours. I could just get lost in the music. And I liked that the second side was a live show. In fact, it was the band's final live show, which was recorded at Birmingham University on May 2nd, just two weeks and change before it would all be over. And the live recording for me really highlighted how the band sounded very different live without all of Martin Hannett's studio wizardry but they still sounded great, and maybe the live recordings were a bit more energetic than the studio versions. Uh, but unlike these so-called live albums that would appear just a few years after, still, you're completely 100% sure listening to this that these guys are playing every note themselves without any clever overdubs. And the overall sound on this record is just really raw and powerful. Um, not in a heavy metal kind of way. Joy Division sound overall is intense, but it's not super aggressive. They're not like hitting you over the head with a wall of noise or tons of feedback like, you know, the Jesus and Mary chain would in later years. A lot of the energy really comes from Ian's vocal delivery, but the band too is solid. Steven's drumming has a strong foundation and Peter and Barney are like trading off melodies and some of these songs do have Peter in a more traditional bassist's role. He hadn't kind of fully transformed yet into what he became in later years. And here's the story uh, as Peter tells it. He said at one point he had to start playing the bass high up on the neck just to hear himself over Barney's amp. <laughs> so that's the old question of survival that every band member faces, how to hear yourself over the loudest member, right? And Peter's solution would just happen to be to make his playing completely unique and recognizable. Uh, he started playing higher up on the neck. He started focusing more on melodies instead of just laying down, you know, the bass as a rhythm instrument. And that changed uh, his bass playing forever. But on some of these tracks, he still is playing the low notes and playing a more traditional bassist role. Um, overall, I say, I, I guess you could say that some of their sound was goth 
Um, in my opinion, that aspect of it is mostly due to Martin Hannett's production. So this is the second time I've mentioned this guy. Who is Martin Hannett? In short, he was a record producer. He was one of the early partners of Factory Records and a very prominent character in that story. And I mean character in the same way that Tony Wilson and Rob Gretton were larger-than-life characters. Um, and rather than get deeply into Martin's quirks and his character, I encourage you to watch the video on YouTube of Tony Wilson interviewing him for TV in the studio, trying to get Martin to explain what he does. And that video, I think, describes him better than I ever could. Uh, at one point in the interview, Martin just slowly stops talking to focus on some bit of equipment or maybe some, some bit of space <laughs> between his eyeballs and the equipment. He was kind of out there. He was an, an eccentric for sure and maybe something of a perfectionist, but without a doubt, he crafted Joy Division's signature sound. And it was a sound that kind of made the band sound like they were playing in a huge aircraft carrier. And it's hard to say what gives Martin's tracks this huge empty feeling, but it's there. And it's probably the way he used reverb on the drums and the way he EQ'd everything to sound completely separate. Um, Martin himself led a very short and tragic life. And you can get an idea of what happened by watching the great Andy Serkis play Martin in the film 24-Hour Party People. Uh, Andy is live action in that film, no CGI, but is still completely unrecognizable as himself because he's wearing this mop of hair and the shades, and he effectively just transforms himself into Martin Hannett. It's an amazing performance. And Tony Wilson did the DVD commentary track, and on there, if you're listening, he remarked that Andy once said that playing Martin was his strangest role, which is pretty funny to hear from a man who is famous for playing Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And Tony goes on to say, yeah, in his opinion, it's true. Martin Hannett was indeed stranger than Gollum. <laughs> so were Joy Division really goth? I think only in the sense of the space and emptiness that Martin created in his mix, and maybe a bit in Ian's more downbeat lyrics but they weren't always downbeat, and I don't think Joy Division were trying to be goth like a band like, say, Bauhaus would, right? No one in Joy Division was just wearing black and wearing eyeliner and bat wings. But uh, I do also like this album still because it has my two favorite Joy Division tracks on it, which I'll call out in a minute. So let's do a little track by track here, and I'll try to move through this as quickly as I can, because like I said, there are a lot of tracks on here. Side A starts out, I should say side A, the first half of the album, which is mostly studio, starts out with a track called Exercise One. And I like that song because it's incredibly simple. As a beginning guitarist, I was able to teach myself how to play it in just a few minutes. And that level of simplicity might turn some people off, like, it's too easy. But for me, it really turned me on. Like, hey, I can play something that's on a professionally recorded album, and it's really simple. And if these guys can do it, so can I. And I just found that inspiring. And total side note, but on the Peel Session version of this tune, uh, Barney hits what may be the biggest and best E minor power chord of his career. So check that out. The second track is Ice Age. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I don't really love this track, though I have to admire Peter's bass throughout which is very much traditional low-end bass. That goes into the sound of music. This is a favorite tune of mine. 
Uh, I love it mostly for the cool bass line, but I also love just how creative it is. It has these really weird vocal noises on the intro, and Barney plays this really strange, scratchy, percussive guitar, which really complements the vocals and is really inventive. And the song is just never boring. And all in all, one of Joy Division's groovier songs. Track four is Glass. All right, this is my favorite Joy Division song. It's just, I think it's very underrated. It's a total barn burner. And for one, you just have to love that fat fuzz bass that's laying down the bricks. But it's also throwing up some melody. I mean, in this song, Peter never stops. He's just so busy. And, you know, these days, someone would probably try to emulate this sort of bass by throwing an eighth note arpeggiator on a distorted bass synth and just setting it to random. But no, he did all this by hand, and uh, doing that just wouldn't work. And this bass line is maybe the most monstrous, monstrous of Peter Hook's career, in my opinion. But that's not all, because you also have a very powerful vocal from Ian. You have this hard and fast drumming from Steve. You have some memorable guitar work from Barney and some weird but very effective uncredited synth work from Martin Hannett. And the whole thing just packs a wallop. And in my opinion, it shows Joy Division at their best. I mean, what a track, Glass, it's amazing. And it's funny to think that they recorded that in 1978, which was pretty early in their run, while writing and recording the mostly more sedate songs that are on Unknown Pleasures. And this was an early track, yet it's as solid as anything that they did after. That goes into The Only Mistake. Uh, this is okay. This is another track like, like Ice Age that I don't really love. And like Ice Age, I find it a little repetitive and boring, maybe because it's a remake from one of their very first songs. Um, yeah, I don't know. And it does have good dynamics, the way it starts and stops, and, and there you have it. Um, Walked in Line is next. All right, uh, another song I don't really love. Um, I think I got, wait a minute, I think I got this, The Only Mistake and Walked in Line mixed up. Never mind, both of those songs, not my favorite. That's all you need to remember. That goes into The Kill. This is my second fav favorite Joy Division song. I like everything about this song. It starts off with yet another killer bass line and goes into one of the greatest hooks ever. Um, remember that this is a band with very little musical training. They're all self-taught for the most part. Um, I mean, Peter and Barney went to that Pistols gig and decided to start their band. They just wanted to do it. They didn't want to learn really how to play their instruments, but Barney was kind of their musical director. And he was a bleeding genius to put together some truly killer arrangements with such simple parts like this song. And he had a real ear for nailing these hooks and bringing the different parts together. And I love how the kill moves and flows into each part with the instruments doing their thing, but also supporting the vocals. And I love how Ian delivers the vocals with a lot of conviction. And again, as an admittedly crappy drummer who's been playing drums for 30 some years, I find this song about impossible to play. And I don't know what Steve Morris is doing, but it sounds awesome. And I'd really love to see him play this and Warsaw Live just so I could figure it out. Maybe somebody could you know, post a YouTube tutorial for me. So yeah, The Kill, great track. Uh, Something Must Break, another okay song. Uh, the thing that stands out here for me is that this is one of the songs where Barney's playing keyboard instead of guitar. So it sounds a little different, sounds kind of interesting. 
Great rhythm work from Peter and Steve once again. That goes into Dead Souls. All right, okay. So one time I was visiting my brother-in-law and he introduced me to this thing he had called Apple Home. And he said, it could play any song, just have to ask it. So I asked it to play some Joy Division and it played Dead Souls. And I said, ah, nice choice. I mean, I like this tune a lot. It somehow sounds bigger than the other Joy Division tunes in a way that makes it sound like it was maybe produced by Jim Steinman. See episode 10 for more about him. But it wasn't. It was just Martin Hannett again. But this time he kind of pulled out all the stops. The song has good dynamics. It gets louder. It gets softer. And the loud parts seem really dense, if that makes sense. But the weirdest thing is, to my ears, how Ian sounds like an old man singing, like he's like my age now or something, or like like he's Peter Murphy. Actually, I think Peter Murphy could do a kick-ass version of this tune, I'm sure. And uh, speaking of covers, Nine Inch Nails did a very straight cover of Dead Souls for the Crow soundtrack, which I talked about in episode 13, the TKK episode. But anyway, Trent is a well-known JD fan. That goes into Sister Ray, which is the track that ends the first half of the album. And this is a live cut from the Moonlight Club in London. It was recorded on April 2nd, 1980, exactly a month before their final gig. And of course, it's a cover of the famously long jam song by the Velvet Underground. Pardon me, New Order would continue to play that tune, for instance, on their Live in Glastonbury album. And I always liked how Ian remarks at the end, you should hear our version of Louie Louie. <laughs> so that ended uh, the first half of the album. And the second half is completely live and is just their final gig. And it starts off with a song called Ceremony. And this is a, a, one of my favorite songs ever uh, from any band. And this is the only recording ever made of Joy Division playing Ceremony in an actual gig. Unfortunately, someone forgot to press the record button until halfway through the song, and Ian's vocals don't, don't come in till the very end. Uh, there are a couple rehearsal tapes of them playing it, but on those, the audio quality is pretty terrible. They're very bassy, and one of those came out on the Heart and Soul box set in the 90s. And the rest of the band famously tried to EQ those practice recordings to try to figure out Ian's words, and of course... New Order would go on to record Ceremony as their first recording, and it would become their first signal, I'm sorry, their first single, and one of their signature tracks. And personally, Ceremony is still my favorite New Order song, so probably one of my top three songs of all time. And it's really a drag to me how it wasn't fully captured here, but, you know, what can you do? The second track is Shadow Play. Again, one of my favorites. Just a cool, powerful song. I especially like the lyrics and the guitar here. It's just a pretty cool rock song. That goes into a means to an end. This is maybe my favorite track from Closer. It's just a really unique jam. It's immediately recognizable and unforgettable. And I love the way the bass line slides down for half tones. I mean, that is not a bass line that a trained musician would ever write. It doesn't follow any rules. It's not playing in any mode. It's not a real scale, unless you're considering the chromatic scale. It's just playing any old notes. And it's almost 
free jazz. And I think that's great. And Tony Wilson pointed to this song as an example of how punk could free the fretboard. And I have to agree. Uh, great tune. And the version on Closer is awesome as well. Check it out. That goes into a song called Passover. Um, I'm looking at the track list, and I see this song is just five minutes and two seconds. And that makes it the longest song in the set. But to me, it feels like it's a much longer song. And maybe it's the way that Steve Morris plays the same beat over and over. It just gets hypnotic. And when I think of this song, I think of the one beat that's misplaced. If you listen to it and you're listening to the whole thing, you kind of go into this, this trance, this fuge state. And then at one point, you hear like a double kick drum, and it's really jarring. And maybe it's a glitch in the recording. But I think it might be one of the very few times Steve Morris ever made a mistake behind the drum set. Or, better yet, maybe it's like the classical art that has deliberate imperfections, you know, as a way to keep God from getting jealous of our creations. Yeah, that's probably it. That goes into New Dawn Fades. Uh, this is definitely one of Joy Division's more intense tracks, especially live. You know, I... Can't help but associate this song with Moby now, though, since I have a recording of him in New Order playing it at his Area 1 festival. But still, great track. Um, some versions of Still at this point have a song called 24 Hours. It was on the original LP version. Uh, but my cassette version that I listened to and the CD version uh, do not have it. And I think they left it off, the cassette and CD, due to space limitations. I think the LP was issued on two discs, so there must have been more room for it. It's weird. I don't, I don't think I've ever listened to that performance of the song. I'll have to look that up. That goes into the classic song, Transmission. Um, I distinctly remember listening to this track on my walk. I can even remember what street I was on. It was like an aha moment. It was etched in my memory because I couldn't believe I was listening to a song recorded by a professional that had such a simple bass line. I mean, he was just playing the same eighth notes over and over. Um, the only way it could have been easier is if he had played quarter notes or half notes or something. I mean, even I could play that bass line and I'd only picked up a guitar like a month prior at that point. And it's not to take anything away from Peter Hook. Transmission has an iconic bass line, and it's one of Joy Division's signature tunes, without a doubt. And I will go so far as to say that the studio version is just transcendent. I mean, that's the only word for it. It's stunning and amazing, just a great song. And the live version doesn't hit those heights, but it's a pretty solid rendition. So simple doesn't mean bad. In fact, one of the arguments I've been making for a long time, or trying to make, on this show is that simple often means better. Simple is good. And that's certainly the case with transmission. That goes into Disorder, which is one of Joy Division's more upbeat songs, believe it or not. Not goth at all. Dig that insane drum intro. It's just a cool, likable tune. That leads into Isolation. Okay, at this point, Barney breaks out his synthesizer. Unfortunately, it got overheated in the stage lights and starts going out of tune almost immediately. I mean, analog gear, folks, am I right? But I love this tune as a sort of proto-synth-pop song, and I think it shows how inventive Barney could be with a keyboard, taking his little bit of punk music theory that he knew, and, you know, he only ever learned to play the white keys, folks, even to this day, 
but he crafted a compelling song out of it. It's simple, but it's effective. It's a great little song. That goes into decades. And this song, in my mind, is a true dirge. It's got the keyboard going more and more out of tune, maybe symbolically. It's a very, very slow song, very mournful. And according to legend, Ian had a seizure during the latter half of this song and had to be helped off the stage. I'm not entirely sure if that's true or not, but that's what I've heard. Uh, however, he did manage to come back on to perform the last number, which is Digital. And this is a perennial favorite, a classic track. Even Nine Inch Nails sometimes plays it on tour. Uh, then the song is over. Ian issues his final thank you, good night, leaving 30 seconds of applause. And that's it. Kind of bittersweet. And that's still, it's not their best known album, but it's one with some real gems. And it features their last show, which is a remarkable bit of history. And naturally, Factory being Factory, they issued the vinyl version as a limited edition box bound in blue Hessian cloth with all later pressings in gray. They always found a way to spend extra money on making special editions. But why do I love this? Again, I, I just love how haphazard it is as a collection. It's a bit of odds and ends. It's, uh, you know, it's got some truly great tracks like The Glass and The Kill, Ceremony. Um, the live album is just, in my mind, an extraordinary time capsule. And to me, it's really poignant as the band's final show. I mean, you think about what would happen in the next couple weeks of their lives and it, everything would change, right? Um, and with a few minor exceptions, still is the last batch of studio recordings that didn't end up on studio albums or singles. And one exception I can think of just off the top of my head is a song called As You Said, which was this weird extra track on the Comakino flexi disc. And legend has it that it was just this little thing that Martin Hannett recorded without the band. It was just this weird little keyboard melody played over a very basic drum machine beat. But it's considered by some, including myself, it, as the key of the band's transformation into New Order because it was the first track associated with the band that ever had a synthetic beat. It was purely electronic. And in some ways, in that sense, it would foreshadow the likes of Blue Monday, which the band would write just three short years after, after as you said. Um, on Unknown Pleasures, Martin was adding synths to the tracks over the band's objections. Martin would just play the synth and add it himself. And the band didn't like it. They preferred that raw, the more raw rock sound. But on Closer, the band had started to embrace synths. And Barney had actually gone so far as to build one from a kit. He built a synth called a Transcendent 2000, and he would play it on some of the album tracks on Closer instead of playing the guitar. So it makes you wonder how Joy Division would have proceeded had they continued with Ian. And you have to think that since Ian had little input to their music, he mostly was just writing lyrics and singing, uh, it was pretty clear that they would have followed a pretty similar path musically as New Order did. And in many ways, New Order's movement sounded very much like Joy Division, and it's easy to imagine Ian singing on those songs. Uh, I also want to point out New Order also had an album's worth of early singles that were mostly, but not completely, collected on substance. Uh, many of those 
had that characteristic Joy Division sound, and some of them were even produced by Martin Hannett. So songs like uh, Cries and Whispers, Mesh, In a Lonely Place, Procession, Everything's Gone Green, and so on. Um, so I think that the transition from Joy Division to New Order sound-wise, that transition from rock into electronics would have been smoother than we would think. And it's all there in the songs that Joy Division and New Order recorded. That They're just continuous when you look at it. And I think we likely would have wound up with the same New Order songs, just with completely different vocals on them by Ian. And it's funny to think about Ian singing Blue Monday. <laughs> what would he have sung over Blue Monday? So that brings us to the Where Are They Now? Of course, you already know this, uh, where they are. You know where they are. Uh, Joy Division, it's no secret, they cast a very long shadow over all of alternative rock, and their influence can't be overestimated. And as far as New Order goes, again, listen to episode three for more about them. I'm not going to rehash it all here. They are one of my favorite bands. Joy Division, again, one of my favorite bands. I'd say it's obvious Joy Division were crucial to New Order's development, but I think, I think even if the band members hadn't formed New Order, if they had just knocked it on the head and said, you know, I'm going to go back and work in the dockyard and the factory or whatever, I think Joy Division would have had lasting success anyway. They had made their mark, okay? And I don't think anyone in their right mind could argue otherwise. There are plenty of successful younger musicians that list Joy Division as an influence. And maybe Joy Division would have been more of a cult band, though, maybe more underground and less recognizable. Um, it's funny to me, but when you think about it, Bauhaus followed a very similar path, right? Now, in that case, Peter Murphy didn't die, but he did bugger off, and he left the other guys to form a different, more lighthearted band. And so would... Bauhaus had been as influential if the rest of the band hadn't formed Love and Rockets. I don't know. It's it's hard to say, but it's interesting to consider. Uh, and just imagine if Ian Curtis had just quit Joy Division, or say he retired to look after his health. Like, guys, I, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm just going to stay home, forget this music thing. And the other guys maybe went out and still formed New Order. Could you imagine maybe Joy Division reforming a couple decades later with Ian as an older man and then just going on tour because that's exactly what happened with Bauhaus. <laughs> After several decades as Love and Rockets, they got back together with Peter Murphy and recorded another album as Bauhaus and went on tour. And I don't know. I don't know. It's weird to think about what could have been. So there you have it, kids. The Mighty Joy Division and their Mighty Compilation album still... This has been Stronger Than Reason, episode 17. We're available on YouTube and as a podcast, wherever you do that podcast thing. And if you like this show, stick around. I have a lot more to talk about, mostly but not always related to 80s and 90s electronic, industrial, and alternative music. And I'll remind you, I'm just a weird middle-aged dude sharing my opinions. So consider leaving yours as a comment below. Please do like and subscribe if you made it this far. And bless you. You're one of the good ones. And I thank you. Until next time, be good and stay strong.